0: Uh, welcome back, everyone, to the first Racing Matters podcast of 2021. I'm hoping for all of you and us that uh, 2021's better than 2020 in many ways. Um, Rebecca, happy New Year! I haven't really seen you visually. How, no, was, no. how was your New Year? Did you lock down or did you break the rules?
1: Uh, we were locked down. Yeah, not a rule breaker. No, no, no. No, no. no um, you're way, you're pretty, way too good. pretty tame, to be honest.
0: Just charades and, you know, the local neighbours over for 25 <laughs> bottles of champagne, was it?
1: Yeah. And, you know, the Kling film game, which I was telling you about.
0: Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> but uh, I, that's how you guys roll down in West Sussex. <laughs> um, well, now that's all out the way. Um, one thing we'd like to do with this podcast uh, is not really talk much about Racing League, although obviously we're putting it on. Um, we like to talk about things that make a difference in racing, and try and bring some of the inner workings of the game and the sport to, to you, the listeners. And um, I got one of the guests I've been trying to get on for a while actually, but it's been a busy time and um, one thing or another, but anyway, we're on. So I'm joined by Derek Poupard who I'd like to call a friend of mine now. Um, someone at Godolphin once described Derek to me as a legend of the game. And um, <laughs> I'd like to agree with that. Derek, how's it going?
2: Oh, very well, thank you. Yeah, it's good. Dubai Dubai's good. The weather's good here.
0: Yeah. yeah, of course. So you're joining us from Dubai because uh you are a senior farrier at Godolphin, and of course the carnival's just started, uh May Um was the was the first race night last night?
2: It was, yep. Last night was our first racing for the carnival. two weeks later this year, through COVID. Yeah. But um, yeah, we're underway now.
0: Good and um it was actually I was, you mentioned this just before we started recording. You and I met in a in a bar near a hotel in um, in downtown Dubai three or four years ago when we had just literally came up with the idea of this. And I thought I'd go to the Dubai World Cup to you know just see whether anyone would be interested at all in team racing. And actually, you uh, you and um, our mutual friend Declan put us in touch with numerous people in Dubai. So we do owe you a, we do owe you a debt, but. It's been a long time. Hey, eh? How's the atmosphere out there now compared to what I would say that, you know, the good days a couple of years ago? What's it like with uh, COVID and so on?
2: I have to admit, you know, if you go to the mall in Russia, where you'd never know there was COVID was on here, except for the mask issue. Um, I think they've kept Dubai moving pretty well. Hey, um, Some years are really busy. I've heard the restaurants in the last two months have been the busiest they've ever been in the record of Dubai. So I think a lot of people have come out here, um, you know, A, for the heat, uh, to get away from the cold weather, but also um, they've kept the COVID control pretty good. Listen, we are getting infections here, but I don't think it's as bad as, as, as it has it been in other countries.
0: Yeah, because one of the things about uh, racing in Dubai, for anyone listening who, who's not been or, or has aspirations to go, um, especially like towards the end of the carnival um, <clears throat> around the World Cup, build up it's extremely social away from the race course you can go to most restaurants bars you'll bump into people people generally either stay at the hotel up by the racetrack or or downtown and I, I just can't imagine what it's like with with less people there although as you said we've had quite a lot of tourists go over um derek just for context for for everyone listening who hasn't heard of you which there'll be very few of course who haven't um why don't you just give us the the uh, your background in racing and how you got to to where you are now
2: well, briefly, I would say, well, I started in South Africa in early 80s. That's where I first met Declan and Mark DeCock, place all places, Sommerfeld. Um, I spent 12 years as a plater shooing racehorses there as the course farrier. had a fantastic thriving business there, but I wanted to learn more. So I ended up going to America for uh, for six years to further my studies. Um, and then and then I got, you know, basically my certified German farrier, which is equivalent of your English dip W. And then... Um, went back to South Africa and then uh, got headhunted to Dubai to work in endurance, which is not my game. Um, I was there for three months. And <laughs> then I ended, up, I ended up with Satish Seymour. Um, I was there for five years in Dubai. And, and Satish, is ba- basically, he, you know, he started racing here. He was uh, right from the beginning. And then from there, got taken on by Godolphin. And I've been worked with Godolphin for 10 years now.
0: And how much of your time is spent um, back at in Newmarket compared to traveling? Because obviously we know the Godolphin operation sends high-class racehorses to every jurisdiction. So what's your time split at the moment?
2: Well, I think I would say um, Dubai would be January, February, March until the World Cup, and then I'll go back uh, to Newmarket because that's when the season starts in the UK. So that's you know that's when the big ones start there. Um, our horses come out here. October each year and then you know I've got Declan Cronin you know he covers for me because they've got no shoes on the horses so he covers for me until I get here so it's a good team effort I do travel around the world you know with specific horses if I need to um, and I've been to I went to Germany and France uh, to Hong Kong with specific horses if I need to so it, it's when they need me I'm there.
0: So just before we get into Becky's questions which are a bit more Detailed and slightly more technical. Just, how do you get into shoeing race horses? You know, did you have always have an interest in racing? Were you a, a horse or animal person? Because, you know, it's not you know, for many. It's not the sort of thing you would just stumble into.
2: Well, I think predominantly in South Africa, ninety percent of all the horses in South Africa are race horses or ex race horses. I mean, it's a huge. It was a big when I was in my, in my youth. That was a, It was huge back in South Africa. And um, you know, I've ridden horses my whole life. I had X-ray horses as horses, uh, and my father was a bank manager to all the trainers uh, in Sommerfeld. Mm-hmm. So that's how yeah. I got my into actually as, a, as an apprentice farrier there. Um, and and from there, it was just racing. I think probably ninety-five percent of all farriers in South Africa will work on race horses mm-hmm. compared to other to other compared to other countries where you we're know, riding horses are, are the different breeds. I would say. Mostly therapists
1: in South Africa. Before I start with um, my questions, I thought I'd let you know. You might be aware, you might not be, but apparently, um, for non-horsey people, watching videos of farriers shoeing is like a therapeutic thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's that's new to me. Yeah, <laughs> I've I have, I've have actually
0: seen that. Yeah, it's part of the part of the ASMR com- uh, community. So. For any listeners that don't know, I think ASMR stands for Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, and it's it's a feeling you get at the, the base of your spine to the top of your head when you, well, people have different triggers. Some people get it watching people uh, clean things. Some people get it um, watching people do sort of skilled work, and I imagine it falls under this uh, this bracket of watching people do skilled work. So there you go.
2: Brilliant. Good to hear that.
1: <laughs> well, I actually asked one of my friends who loves watching these videos some questions. So most of these questions which I'm going to ask you come from her. So shout out, cat. <laughs> <laughs> and so the first question is, what are the differences between shoeing and maintaining a racehorse's feet in comparison to other horses?
0: Oh, the Wi-Fi just went there. I think, um, yeah, what's it, what was the difference or what is the difference between ensuring a racehorse compared to other horses, especially sport horses, such as eventing or, or, or so on and so forth?
2: Um, well, I think a racehorse is more refined. You know, it is, it, as a thoroughbred, it has thinner hoof wall. It's got, um, it's got a longer pest and it's a more refined animal and um, built for speed. So we'd be always ensuring them with much lighter, lighter shoes um, because, you know, speed, speed, the lighter you go with speed, the better you are. Whereas the sport horses, they'll have a thicker wall to nail to. They can take a heavier shoe. Um, so it, it, there's a lot of difference involved. So if you can do a, a racehorse, you know, the rest of the breeds are pretty easy because you've got something to work with. And um, the racehorse inherently has foot problems based on it's, it's, it's been bred for speed and nothing else. So that, that's where that has made a big difference. So that's why there's so much, so many new techniques so much new technology out there is purely because it's a necessity.
1: So talking about new technology and thin hoof walls, do you want to tell our listeners about the hoof cast?
2: Oh, absolutely, yeah. So um, basically, the well, hoof cast has been around for about 15 years, um, but the original one was a bit bulkier. Um, I've gone to a slimmer version right now. So it's basically a weighs uh, a third less. Um, and when you've got a horse that you've overshot, you can imagine now you've been putting nails in every three weeks into the same spot. You eventually end up with nothing to work with. In the past, we used to glue the shoes directly onto the horse's foot. But when you do that, every time you take that shoe off that you've glued directly onto the, sho- the foot, you're taking part of the foot off with it. So you end up with a stump. So the hoof cast now, I've, I've formulated a way of putting a hoof cast on now. And the hoof cast is basically when you break your arm, and they put a plaster cast on your arm. It's, it's basically a tape that once you put water on it or it's exposed to air, it becomes rigid. And um, we now are adhering this to the horse's foot to nail a shoe to. So that it takes all the pain response out of the horse's foot and it gives it more like a retaining wall. It gives the horse a bit of a foot to stand on. Um, and to me, it's, it's been a game changer, it really has.
0: And so just to interrupt, Becky, I, I always find this stuff really fascinating. And actually, I, I sat talking with with you, Derek and Declan about this uh, or learning rather than me talking. Um, one thing that I guess people don't think of and consider, but I think Declan actually sort of mentioned to me on more than one occasion is that, you know, we've been putting nails into horses' hoofs for thousands of years, you know, and... The the technique and the technology really hasn't changed because you know you sort of didn't necessarily need to change something if it's not broke, don't fix it. But of course, it's a pretty medieval technique. I mean, by definition, do things like hoof casts take away from the original techniques, or are they there purely for the betterment of the horse? Purely for the betterment of the horse.
2: The original technique of nailing on. I think it's going to be there for a long time. So I'm busy working on new techniques now of actually applying a shoe on directly with a hoof cast. You know, that, that's something I'm working on in this season in Dubai because every year I come out, I've, I've got a mission and that's one of my goals this year. But I mean, we can't get away from the nailing. It's been going on for thousand, probably over a thousand years. You know, When the Romans first built the road, we put shoes on. And it's purely, the only reason we put shoes on is that wear of the foot ex- exceeds growth. And that's the only reason. I mean, besides what they say, traction and all that, I disagree with that. It's purely a wear factor. And that's the only reason you are nailing them on. So the Celtics were the first ones to actually make a shoe with a, with, a, with a hole in it. It was like almost like a keyhole that you could nail the shoe on. But it was a very, very broad horse with very thick walls. Um, and then, you know, as the racehorses developed, it, and each year, I think the racehorses are actually refining more and more and more in body, but the feet are being left behind. So I think... That's is where
0: we are trying to help them now. Yeah, I find that actually really interesting and, and you, you bring up the kind of physiology of the horse and of course as we breed and breed and breed and we're breeding either more speed or stamina into the animal, of course inherently um, the, the 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 general physiolo- physiology will change, but I doubt the the hoof keeps up the same uh, speed of development as as, as, a, as the muscular areas do. um Becky, what was your your next question was about hoof cast and testing, I think?
1: Yeah, how was the hoof cast tried and tested, and does it take a while for a horse to get used to it, or like, is there any downtime? Or
2: no, not at all. I mean, you can put a hoof cast on now and, and get the horse out in, in, in ten minutes. So there's no problem with that because it's it's basically like having an acrylic nail added to your finger. Um, you know, if you've got a very very thin fingernail, um, that you can actually feel putting pressure on it, and I put an acrylic fingernail on you, you know, you can press on it and you've lost the feeling of it. That's exactly what the hoof cast is doing. It's taken the feeling, the sensitive feeling away by reinforcing it. So no, downtown is not is not bad at all. Um, as far as testing goes, you know, the, the product's been out for 15 years. So um, I've just refined it for the racing. Um, and, we, and the way we're applying it now, we're actually gluing it onto the horse's foot and then cutting the heels out. So we're making an extension or thickening up the hoof wall that was there already. Um, and I think I did most, a lot, of the, a lot of the testing was done out here in Dubai because the horses are barefoot, um, and it's just progressed from there.
1: And um, do you use the hoof cast on, on all of the horses, like the Godolphin horses that you shoe? Or are no, some- not at
2: all. No, not at all. It's only for the ones that we needed, you know, the ones that have the, the, th- the thinner wall or they, they're feeling their feet more than they should be that's when we use it. So now I wouldn't say it's it's for every horse. It's just there as a tool um, when we need it.
1: Are there horses outside of racing um, that they've had the hoof cast used on them?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, Every breed now that's out there. No, because if you, you know, unfortunately confirmation of a horse dictates everything. Once you take the confirmation and you multiply it by the environment that the horses, no matter what breed it is, the minute that the, the, the environment changes, that we need um, help with the horse, the hoof cast is there as that aid. So yeah, in every breed, I've had it in polo, I've had it in uh, endurance, I've had you know, it in, in every discipline. Um, the minute we that they, 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 the foot gets compromised, this is just a reinforcement to help get it past that compromisation.
1: So you would say it was more to do with the discipline that the horse is in, that's how they compromise their feet, it's nothing really to do with the breed or?
2: No, breed breed dictates the percentage of the problems. So if it's a thoroughbred racehorse, it's probably going to be 80% of them. You know, yeah. it's going to be. But I would say environment is the most is probably the biggest factor here. Um, you know, if a horse rides in a very very abrasive terrain, or it gets overshod, no matter what breed it is, any horse that gets overshod, um, it, it will end up with a foot that becomes too porous to nail onto. And that's when we need the hoof cast. It gives us something to attach the nail to, to hold the shoe on.
0: You mentioned um, your the horse is not wearing any shoes in in Dubai. For, for our listeners who may be unaware of the different uh, sort of methods and, and techniques that people apply in different places, do you want to explain a little bit about that for us?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that was Declan and Mark DeCock were the ones that put me onto this because... Um, you know, we bring about 50 horses out to Dubai, and I've, you know, I've been with them for 10 years now, and for the first four years, I was nailing the shoes on. And then I, I experimented with a, with a couple of horses by taking the shoes off them, um, because where we are out in Dubai, we're in a desert situation. I haven't got a tar road in sight, and the horses walk in a rubber mat, matting until they get onto a sand track, and, and I just noticed a huge difference, there the change in the horse's foot is incredible even as you take a shoe off them there's a couple of things it's the peripheral loading it's the moisture content it's the movement of the foot um, against the horse's shoe uh, and you'll just notice that I just noticed that the horses just seem to get better so now for the last five years you know Charlie's strike rate in Dubai has been absolutely amazing and and I do attribute it a lot to the horse the fact that if the horses go barefoot But it it does take a transition state. It's about three months of transitioning barefoot before you can actually start working the horse fast because the foot is weak when when you first take the shoe off. The horse does get feeling back in its foot which never had before. Um, And to me, the, the foot just, a whole morphology of the foot changes and the horse's attitude changes in my opinion. So yeah, I do think it makes a huge difference.
0: How does the attitude of the horse um, change for, for the uninitiated?
2: Well, you know, when, when you think about you nailing a steel spark into, <laughs> into a horse's foot to attach the horse, <laughs> um, I still put the shoes on for the races. So like yesterday, I had, I had 10 runners last night. Yesterday morning, I put 10 horses' shoes on. They raced last night, and today the shoes came off, so they're back to barefoot again. But I've left the foot in its natural state you know, as much as possible. So all I've done is just put a shoe on for the race and take it off again. They do not feel me putting those nails in this foot because it is strong, it is solid, and it has just got a thick, thick, basically um, a callous foot there that I'm nailing to. So there's no feeling. When when we show a horse on a regular basis, the foot thins out a lot. And I do think they feel it. They feel the way, I mean, there's no doubt that horses with, with, with shoes on have a lot more cordial heel pain, you know, which, which is the back half of the foot. They do get a lot more sensitive in that area with shoes on than when they are barefoot. So, yeah, I do think that they don't feel us nailing as much when they are barefoot.
0: I find this really super interesting. So, Becky, I was actually going to ask you with regards to the horses that, that you've had. Um, which you do, show jumping or eventing? I can't remember which one you do.
1: Eventing.
0: Eventing. Um, have you ever had your horses barefoot?
1: No, I haven't. And also it's interesting because I I only know one person who, well, she doesn't have the horse anymore, but it was barefoot and it had never had shoes on ever and they just kept it that way. Um, but most people that I speak to about shoeing horses they kind of always say, well, my horse has always been shod, um, always had shoes on, so I'm not going to change it kind of thing. And I don't know, maybe it's because we do a lot of road work and something like in the summer, we're sort of galloping on harder ground. I, I don't know. What's your opinion on that, Derek?
2: You, you just nailed it right there on the head. It's the environment that you're in. It's the road work that you're doing on. Now, if you had, if your horse was conditioned for it, you might get away with it. But if you're going to ride in a stony field, you're going to get sore feet or your horse is going to feel its feet. So, yeah, and, and, and you also nailed it right there when you said, oh, we've been doing it for the last hundred years. We're going to keep doing it because that's the way it's meant to be done. Um, so, yeah, and, and I, you know, I'm working on, on, on changing the concept of, of what we are doing with the horses, because I do think that um, going forward now, we are going to be helping them a lot more with, with, with development that we're working mm-hmm. on right now.
1: So what did farriers do before the hoof cast for horses that had thin walls and compromised feet?
2: They used to glue them. They used to, um, in the past, we would use a, a product called Equilox. Um, it was originally d- designed to, to repair car bumpers with, of all places, because it's a flexible <laughs> adhesive. And they'd use that with a fiberglass and basically patch the horse's foot up um, and then nail to that patch. Unfortunately, though, you know, if you put a mass of this of this glue on a horse's foot, it does. um, It's been known to leach proteins from the horse's foot, it does get to a very high heat. Um, I do use the same glue on 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 the hoof cast, but I'm using one ounce of glue or or even two ounces maximum of glue spread over the entire foot. So it's a very, very very thin layer. um, And it doesn't seem to create the damage that if you put a mass on on, on one particular spot does create. So it, that's what we used to do or directly glue the shoe to the horse's foot.
0: I think it's it's really interesting to talk about technology um, in all sides of racing, actually, because one, one thing I've noticed since we've been in, in the sport these four or five years is that people are generally resistant to change, but there's also a great movement of people that want to know a bit more they want to know about how this stuff works they they want to to know what goes on behind the scenes and 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 where the sport might go in the future in order to make the horses faster but to look after them better and and so on how much of your day-to-day thinking is about what's coming next as opposed to of course you know let's be honest the the most important job is to get the horse on the track faster wins races how much of your headspace is thinking about the future as opposed to what happens tonight?
2: 90%. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> no. I'll tell you why I say that is because, the, I mean, I've been in England for 35 years, so I mean, I could I could show a horse in my sleep, you know, I really could, you know, it was probably putting my eyes shut. But I, because I've been in Dubai, because I've had the horses barefoot, it's, it's made me think that, you know, what can we do going forward? Um, that is going to help the horses and you know that's that's where I am right now with my technology that I'm working
0: with. I find it I, I just think that it's it's refreshing to hear hear that sort of uh, opinion and comment um, because one and we had some people on this podcast a, a few weeks ago for uh, who are you know in the social media racing world and so much of it and so much of the kind of negative side of racing is about is purely about results and winners and horse is deadbeat or the horse is amazing and it's it's very polarizing and it's 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 quite nice to to speak to someone who's at the sharp end of the of the competitive side of racing but to also have a fairly balanced view about the the animal's welfare along with its performance and also where the sport's heading next because you know you referenced uh roman shoeing horses one thing we've always said and in in regards to the audience for racing is that everyone knows what a horse race is because we've been doing it for thousands of years running horses in a line but where it goes uh, and can the horse keep improving can it get faster and so on i think that a lot of it starts with with people like you derek who know more about the horse you know the physiology the anatomy uh than us punters at home um just on that and you mentioned your studies in the states earlier and you mentioned Declan earlier, Declan Cronin, who, who um, is, is a great guy, a um, uh, really, really top man. And um, he took me once when I was in Dubai to the stables and he hooked me up to this machine. <laughs> um, this is the, I, I, I guess, is it electrolysis, Derek?
2: It's, it's called the Equiscope. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's microcurrent of all things.
0: <laughs> so,
2: yeah, so I mean, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's, we've actually got, got one now because seriously, I mean, you know, if you've got an injury, I got kicked by a horse last week by, you know, just by accident and uh, it healed yeah. me up in two days. So yeah, it it it's
0: a, it's it's an incredible machine. It, it is incredible, you know it's a bit a bit nerve wracking when you think that this five hundred kilo horse gets <laughs> gets this thing put on him, and then he's like, "Oh, you've got a bit of tennis elbow. Come down and have a look at it." Um, but yeah, I I wish I could have done it more regularly. But how mu- how much in your in your view and and your experience of things moved on in the last let's say ten or fifteen years compared to the ten or fifteen previous? Because I know technology moves at an exponential rate, but the last twenty years technology really has moved on exponentially. Has it translated into racing?
2: Yes, definitely. Now, something like that, for example, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm using a 3D printer in my everyday work now. You know, that's something that we wouldn't have we wouldn't have heard about probably even five years ago. Well, but it wasn't last year. I've only started this, you know, a year. Um, but yeah, things like that are incredible. And um, the, 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 the new scanning technology that's out there, the x-ray, the radiograph technology x-rays, that's also the, the detail that we can get now compared to what we had before is magnificent. And then the CAT scans uh, and, and all, the, all the scanning equipment that the vets can use to try and find an injury before a horse you know, breaks down, for example. You know, I think that's really, really important. I mean, our top horses Will go through and get an MRI um, just purely to make sure that they're okay. You know, especially if it's a horse that that, that you know is it's got a stud value of, of you know a couple hundred million dollars. Why would you want to jeopardize um, something going wrong with them when you could have an MRI just to make sure that everything's you know everything's functioning you know, as it should be? So uh, that sort of stuff is really going to change the game in the future because you know, as, and also as things go on, the costs come down. You know, and when the costs come down, people use it more. Um, so, yeah, that, that to me is very important.
0: Yeah. And um, so I mentioned briefly there America before I got carried away. Um, when you were in the States, whereabouts in the States were you? I was in
2: Virginia, Middleburg, Virginia.
0: Oh, nice. West Virginia. And yeah. um, what were you actually studying there? How did you, you said you wanted to uh, advance your knowledge and move your studies on. What, what, did, what did you learn in Virginia that you couldn't have done either in the UK or back, or back home?
2: But basically, you know, UK wasn't, wasn't even a thought back when I was back in South Africa. And, and my mother, being American, um, one, and also that I had a very good veterinary friend, Dr. Steve O'Grady, who was um, with Brian Baker and John McVeigh, the veterinary practice in Sommerfeld, invited me over to, to basically learn from, um, from him and all the local farriers in the area. And it was an opportunity I just thought I couldn't miss because you no, know, we we really we really secluded in far as our um, further education went. So by going there, I, I, you know, I had to learn how to forge. Um, I did glue on shoeing. I learned, uh, you know, we, we basically you studied. I studied for six years, uh, horses anatomy, um, different shoeing techniques, and not just race horses. I was doing. I actually did like the Colombian Olympic team of, you know, for the '96. <laughs> atlanta olympics so i did a lot i did a lot of different breeds polo uh, so i really did broaden my horizon and um, so when i when i finished that i felt you know i did have a lot a, a lot more knowledge than i needed
0: that's cool I and,
1: that's one, sorry, going back sorry i think that's one misconception as well as speaking to my farrier they they trained um uh, for, for so long like you say you had six years worth of training and i think people non-horsey people anyway don't actually realize how important the horse's foot and how they need to be shod properly really is?
2: Oh, I'll tell you that, no, the United Kingdom, the failure the, the, the training there, it's a four year apprenticeship and they've got to go to college, they've got college blocks. Up. It is one of the hardest careers to take because apprentices don't get paid very well. They worked really, really hard, but by the time they are finished there, the level of, of, of horseshoeing and making horseshoes is, is the best in the world. Uh, uh, in general, over the spectrum of farriers around the world, it's probably the only country that has um, a registration act where the farrier has to be registered, has to be qualified before they can actually touch a horse's foot or, or shoe a horse. So in that respect, they've done well there.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. And um, I have watched some of the videos, not for relaxation purposes, but mainly to try and educate myself. Um, but I will be looking at some later and I can't sleep. Um, let's just move away from from the art of the, uh, the shoeing and uh, let's get on to some of the stuff that maybe our audience would be interested in. And I know Becky has a particular affection for racing in Dubai, just because there was a period in the office where every Thursday uh, we didn't do anything uh, apart from look at the form. Um, who are some of the, just just for for fun, Derek, who's some of the the, the, the horses that you've worked with, whether Godolphin or elsewhere, or elsewhere that, that really stand out to you? I'm sure people ask you all the time in the pub for your favourite horse, but are there any that really, you know, got you deep down?
2: I would say definitely. I mean, right back, if we go back to 2012, um, I shot Monterosso for the World Cup. Uh, World Cup win with with Al Zaruni, you know, when was still there. That was a highlight. A blue bunting, because she came out to Dubai and then came back and won the Guineas, uh, mm-hmm. the Guineas 1000. You know, those were my first two huge wins for for Godolphin. Um, and then, you know, I would say it, all in all, Massa, um, when he won the Derby, you know, he was out in Dubai with me the whole time. He came back uh, to the Craven meeting. Three days before the Craven meeting, he was barefoot. Um, and then you saw he won the Craven meeting by almost six men, six lengths, uh, and then went on to win the derby that year. So that was a huge one for me. Um, and then last year, Gwyath. Uh, Gwyath is probably my, my, my most favourite horse of all time because he has been a, a hoof cast project horse. He has been... Um, I've flown. To almost every race meeting he's ever been at, I have flown there um, and, and worked on him. You know, he's just one of my horses that I've, I've been with um, the most of, of all my horses in my lifetime in racing.
0: He's and a monster.
2: Oh, and last year he was Cartier Horse of the Year. So, you know, yeah. that, that is a pinnacle of my career. Does he travel well? He does. You know, he really, really does. Um, you know, I used to actually go with him and, and I'd show him at the races. You'd go there with a bar shoe on and out shoe him with the races of half an hour before he ran, uh, you know, and he would stand there quite pleasantly. You know, and, and, and he was very successful doing that. So we kept that going.
0: Yeah, it's so cool. Very, a very popular horse, I think, and uh, maybe more to come. Just before we get on to, Becky has 10 questions that she asks all of our guests. Um, but just before we get on to that, I just wondered, do you, um, you, you live in Newmarket, do you ever keep up with um, the horses that have retired to stud? Do you ever go to have a look at them down at Moulton, or is it not really your thing?
2: No, unfortunately not. You know, we, so, I'm so committed. You know, let's say, for example, Charlie's got 250 horses. I'm looking after 55 of them. And I'm dedicated to those 55 because it's, 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 you know, racing is a feeding system. You know, you, you've got, you've got your lower horses as they improve, they'll come up into the main yard. Um, so I'm always looking after the main yard horses and they just keep feeding and, and, and circulating around. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll, the minute they leave my yard, I'll probably, I'll, you know, I won't have much to do with them at all. I'm just concentrating on, on those 55 that I'm looking after.
0: Yeah. The reason I asked that is um, I remember I was at a, Godolphin, dolphin I, I can't remember why but I was I was up at the office there and I saw the photo of uh of everyone with Massar after the derby win and that felt like a real like the photo showed it was a real not just a team effort but there was a great deal of affection for the horse everyone was I think you were in that photo actually somewhere near the front probably holding the trophy and um, <laughs> um and it just sort of always got me thinking you know when these guys move on you know is is it do you feel a loss or is it, as you say, the conveyor belt just goes round and you just keep working?
2: No, listen, we've got a strong affection for the ones that go on to become the studs. And like, I mean, uh, if you think about uh, Blue Point, you know, I know he's an Australian, he, he's a favourite as well. I mean, think about oh, what he did at, at Royal Ascot. Yeah. I mean, back you
0: know, favourite horse.
2: Back, back to back Wednesday. Eh? I mean, really, you know, and, and he was a Dubai horse. I went to Hong Kong with him. Um, I flew to Hong Kong with him when he went out there. One of my, you know, it's, it bought, um, you know, he bought like a seller. He was such a strong, stocky horse eh? he really was a magnificent beast. But you know, for example, I always see them at the stallion parade, probably once every two years, and and you know, definitely got an affection for them. There's no doubt about that. You know, that, they, they, they will they will remain in my heart forever. That's for sure.
0: You mentioned the stallion parade. It's probably my second or third favorite event in all of all of racing. It's just the best day. And, uh, you know, I've got everything crossed that that this July we can uh, catch up again um, at the parade. Before we let you go on your merry way into the Dubai night, I'll, uh, I'll hand over to Becky to to take you through the 10 questions. There's, there's no pressure on this, but some of the answers have told us a lot about the character of the people we're
2: talking to. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Oli. <laughs>
1: So There's basically 10 questions. It's this or that. So I'll give you two options and you basically tell me, me which one you prefer. Okay. Um, so question number one, Cheltenham or Ascot?
2: Ascot. Oh, 100%.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Tea or coffee?
2: Or coffee. Dogs Can't go with that in the morning.
1: <laughs> me too. Uh, dogs or cats?
2: A cat. It has to be a cat. I've got a cat that uh, yeah, I've, I've rescued in bar that's followed me all over the world. So, yeah. Oh.
1: <laughs> um, sunset or sunrise?
2: Sunset. Absolutely. Sunset,
1: yeah. City or countryside?
2: Countryside.
1: Bar or pub?
2: Pub. <laughs> Red
1: wine or white wine? Red one. Uh, football or rugby?
2: Or oh, rugby. That's not even, that's not even, that's a given there.
1: <laughs> and then this is the controversial question. Um, sprinters or stayers?
2: That is a huge one, hey. Um, <laughs> no, I have to say stayers, hey. I think they just show more of a character than a horse. They really do, because when they dig deep, you know, and, they, and they've been going for so long, uh, I think it takes, I think it's more class involved with them. Really,
1: I do. That's I think it, had interesting. I we've one or two people yeah. that have said sprinters and we've had, what, 11 people on the park? Yeah, most people go for yeah.
0: stairs, but it's interesting, yeah. you know, the Godolphin sprinting pedigree is, is yeah. pretty special as well. And uh,
1: Yeah.
2: But if you right. think about, I mean, like, I've met Mr. Varius, I mean, he is, is a legend. You know, we've been trying to beat him for how long now with, with, uh, with cross-counter, for example, but know, we've been running second to him many times. But I, you know, I just think that, that a horse can, that can dig that deep um, for so long, it's just to me, it's, it, it goes into legend status. I really do.
0: Yeah. Just before we go, actually, you mentioned Cross Counter, um, one of the few Godolphin horses that have had a go um, down in Australia. Where's your, uh, where have you been to favorite race day or race track or or event? Where Where would you say is you know, considering you've been to a number of these events, where would you say is your favorite?
2: I still put my then um, World Cup night as number one. Yeah, you know because the atmosphere there is just absolutely incredible, and the amount of money that goes on. Um, I would say Ascot would be Royal Ascot would be my second, um, and then the Arctic Triomphe day. I think that's a magnificent day, and then the Newmarket Guineas day. That mm. would be my order.
0: Yeah, and um, you know actually it makes me feel a bit sad thinking of all those events because I think I went to all of those last year or the year before, and just fantastic days. And, um, you know, I, I know we're very lucky to work in racing because of the social element to it, but it's it's not to be underestimated how important that social element is to racing in, t- in terms of making the whole thing come together. And um, yeah, that's just made me like a dagger to the heart. I haven't been to <laughs> race day since Cheltenham in last year when I probably picked up the coronavirus and oh God almighty um derek look thanks so much for uh, sparing the time i know you guys are very busy out there um pass on my best to everyone um out in dubai good luck for the rest of the season and um hopefully we'll catch up with you again before racing league starts in uh, july
2: lovely Oli. thank you very much and thanks becky thank you bye everyone